Hello, and welcome to the Dangerous Creatives Podcast. We're ready to dive into the deep end of running a creative business, the joys, the sorrows, and the shit no one wants to talk about. I'm your host, Kristen Sweeting, a traveling wedding photographer and coach for creative business owners who scaled two businesses while single parenting, so I know it doesn't always go as planned. Hold on to your seats as we explore what wholeness looks like within your creative journey and how growth doesn't always come in the ways we expect. Hey, and welcome back to the Dangerous Creatives Podcast. This episode is named Eric's Wonderful Life, and it's about my friend Cindy's son, Eric, who was a creative, a designer, an artist, and also really struggled with mental health issues and addiction. In this episode, we talk about addiction, recovery, mental health challenges, and some other adult topics. So just a heads up in case you have little ears listening that this one might not be for them. Hope you enjoy this conversation. We dig into lots of topics that are so important to talk about as creatives, and there's also lots of resources linked in the show notes if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction or mental health challenges right now. This month is Mental Health Awareness Month, so just an extra note to you if this is something you struggle with that you're loved and that we would love to help connect you with resources if you feel like reaching out after this episode. So thanks for listening, and here is our conversation. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Dangerous Creatives Podcast. I am so excited to be here with my friend, Cindy Blum of Blum Guitars, and you guys are going to be so inspired and encouraged by her story and just the work that she and her husband do with their guitar shop. Um, Cindy, thank you so much for being willing to be here and to share your story with us. And I'd love if you introduce yourself a little bit more and what you do, where you are, all of that. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Cindy Blum. I'm actually a mom, a wife, a business partner, an addiction and recovery coach, and a friend to a lot of people who have a similar story that we do. And that's been interesting because it's kind of a lot of new friendships from people that I've never met or people close by. And that's kind of why the podcast is important to just let people know there's community. So I'm really glad to be here. Thank you so much. Well, a big part of your story and a part of why you do the work with your guitars ties back to your son, Eric, and his story. Would you be willing to share some of that and just how you got into recovery coaching and why it's so important to you and your husband? So we moved to Nashville in 1991. My husband's a luthier and he, we moved here. So he got a job at Groom Guitars and worked there, um, managed their repair shop. And in 1995, I started working at Christ Community Church and worked there basically from 95 through 2018. And while I was on staff there, I did a lot in the ministry area that's called congregational care. And I worked with the counseling center and pretty much was on their team, which was great because I got to sit around the table with a lot of people who were a lot smarter than me. But I began to see what it looked like to live in this world where we're trying to help people fight against the illness. We're fighting with them against the illness, not trying to give them their you know, best options of, hey, let's go for a walk and you'll always feel better. And you know, just more of a holistic look. So that really formed my thinking. 
And during those years, my, I have two children and Eric struggled with mental illness for a long time. I mean, when his grandmother died, when he was in second grade and we could tell that there were things that just didn't, he didn't have categories for it in an unusual way. So, you know, back then they were like, well, we're going to put him on a little anger team so that he learns how to deal with anger. Well, it really wasn't anger. It was depression and anxiety. So he struggled with that all his life was actually able to go to college and graduated with a graphic design degree. All of those times he would have some mental health events along the way. And many times it would lead towards substance use. And even though I sat around a table with a bunch of people who really were working hands-on in mental illness, I didn't really understand addiction like I do now. So we lost him on May 1 of 2014. So this is May 2 of um, 2022. So that was eight years ago. And the day that he passed, I remember friends of mine are like, what are you going to say? Because he died of an accidental heroin overdose. And I opened Facebook for some crazy reason. And my daughter had posted, my best friend and brother just died of an accidental heroin overdose. And I said, ah, looks like we're telling the truth because you really can't unring that bell. So that's what started us on this journey. And soon after that, I became certified addiction and recovery coach so that I could help families and many times people who are in active addiction really want to work with someone who has a story of recovery and addiction in their own story. Families really like the fact that we're sitting on the outside looking in and we have another whole different perspective and understanding. And, you know, it's a family illness. So when we're looking at things, we, when we're looking at resources and things like that, we really need to, to be able to help. So I've been doing this kind of work for like 25 years, but the last eight years has been really focused on grief recovery after substance passing and those kinds of things. So Eric suffered from bipolar two. Bipolar two is a lot harder to diagnose. And I would say the anxiety looks a lot more like agitation. So for many, that anxiety can play out to be this fearful, like I am going to crawl out of my skin, I'm dying. And anger is quickly a controlled way of getting through the anxiety, which is not fun for the rest of the world. And it's very misunderstood. And if we did a little more with attachment injury repair and some of those kinds of things, we would probably be able to get them to come out of that traumatized part of their brain and come into their prefrontal cortex where we could have a conversation or they could self-soothe. But there's a lot of people who struggle that just don't know how to soothe themselves. Yeah. Bipolar two looks like the swing of kind of outward facing anger. What's the other swing look like? Depression. Yeah. Every person is so different. So that's me really, really simplifying it. But for Eric, in fact, I should just say for him, that's what it looked like for him. Very, very dark days. And they wouldn't be weeks on end. It would vary. And that's where he, you know, he mostly just didn't want to feel the pain that he was feeling. And many times that's where the substances come in. So he was 29 when he died. He went off our insurance when he was 26. So for three years, there was no insurance and no way for him to have 
any kind of mental health support. So, you know, that was rough. Yeah. I'm curious. You've been doing this work for so long. I feel like we've come a really long way in the last few years in understanding mental health, but still have so much farther to go. What do you wish people understood about addiction and recovery and mental health issues that maybe the way that it's been stigmatized in the past hasn't been helpful? So, you know, the general public, I wish that they knew that this is an illness that wants them dead. Our version of hospice just looks a lot different than when we have normal hospice for terminal illness. And I don't want to belittle anyone who's struggling in, in, in that way. But for me, I'm going to say some pretty blunt things because I'm trying to shock people into thinking about it differently because we have this picture in our mind of what this person looks like. And for many of us, it could be, you know, it could be a dad who was an alcoholic. It could be a mom who was an alcoholic or used pills. It could be a brother who stole. It could, it, there's very, very, very key people in people's lives that have this character that they think about. And yes, that's true. They can be toxic. They can be all of that. They can be dangerous. And I in no way am saying to not be cautious and not be wise. I am very much so saying that, but I'm saying as a society, we have to do better. I think I would want them to know my daughter. She says, if I write a book, it's going to be called the war on drugs killed my brother. I want them to know that the way we treat anybody who's been busted with any kind of drug is not the answer. They're detoxing in jail. That's what happened with Eric. He detoxed in jail and Six months later, he had a mental health event and decided to go and use and it killed him because he wasn't detoxed properly. So these are medical conditions that we should all be responsible for. I believe the resources are there. I believe that there are ways of applying money and grants. And many times they're only going to the wheel that's already been built. So a lot of people think, you know what? If I just get him to 30 days of rehab, you know, then it'll go well. What I wish people knew is that the recovery time is so much longer than that. What I wish people knew was that Dr. Stephen Lloyd, that's L-O-Y-D, one L, is a wise man and they should watch everything that he has to say about the brain and the science of addiction, because we know a lot. We know a lot more. This is not, hey, 90 meetings in 90 days only. There's a, lots of different ways. So when I'm working with people and families, I tell them it's really more like, what are your resources? I'm almost more like a financial planner because everybody's resources are different. So one size doesn't fit all. What I wish they knew was that we're looking at two years for someone who's using hard drugs for them to get their brain back. I don't think people know that. So this is what we do. We go, Johnny got busted. We're going to do an intervention. We're sending him off to rehab for 30 days. And it's probably going to cost $1,000 a day if you don't have insurance. Okay. So $30,000. Okay, Johnny, you better not screw up because we put everything we had at this. Everything. Welcome back. Don't screw it up. Yeah, I get that. So a lot of rehabs, they don't even really know if there's an underlying mental illness. We didn't know about Eric's trauma. We didn't know about that until eight hours before he died. So there's so many pieces of the puzzle that we aren't even necessarily getting a good medical intake or psychological intake. So all of those things, it's like, 
it's a hundred days before there's any prefrontal cortex lights coming on. They're doing scans. We can literally scan the brain and look at it. And I'm like, I think those kinds of resources should be available when there's mental illness involved, tons of stuff that can be done. And you got to find a rehab center that can do it. Maybe you can't even afford that. Maybe they don't have insurance. A lot of times they've families have just been wiped clean along the way. So it's, it's tough. And most many, many, many are very creative people. And those are the ones that I think kind of come our way because of what we do. And because Eric was such an artist that people go, you guys get it. My kid was like that. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you mentioned the, the title of your daughter's book someday being the war on drugs killed my brother, what is the war on drugs? Cause that goes way back to when Reagan said, if you use drugs, we're putting you in jail. And when we think about like someone having major anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, these mental health issues, and just throwing people in prison, compounding their trauma, compounding their stress. It's the exact opposite of what needs to happen. I, I think about, you know, times where I've had really dark seasons of depression I'm like, I understand why people use things to try to numb this pain. It is very painful. And, and just the thought that, that the answer to that would be to put people in prison is heartbreaking and so backwards. It it is. First of all, when, you know, when Nancy Reagan did that, what, what really did we know about mental health, which I get. Okay. So, so that happened, but let's not continue to think that that's the way. So when I get calls I will have lots of family members go, you know, we just, or even people in recovery, you know, like people who are in the rooms is what I call it. They're in the rooms and they're going, you know, they just have to hit rock bottom. And I'm like, well, you know what rock bottom is for someone with mental illness? That's death. Do we, do we say that? Another story that I found so eye-opening about the stigma And this was early on after Eric died and there was a nurse and she was probably in Ohio or one of, or West Virginia, one of the, what I call the ground zero places for the opioid deaths. There was so many and she was a nurse in the ICU and she tells the story of she was, her desk was here and she was looking at two different rooms and she said one room was a father and he has, was on his fourth heart surgery weighed 400 pounds. The room was full of balloons, the family, the grand, everybody had visitors all the time when they could come into ICU. The room next door, a 27 year old girl, the lights off, not one visitor. And she was there because she overdosed on heroin. And she said, where's the moral failure? Where's the moral failure? And she goes, this, this man is doing his life incorrectly, but we were okay with that. But this girl has probably a dual diagnosis and she's in that room all alone, dark, fighting for her life. And I'm going, that's the picture that I think we have to see. We have to start seeing people with mental illness as important patients, as a medical um, condition, not a behavior that they don't just need more behavior modification. And I I believe that our, I believe that our psychiatrists need to get better at this, but because people who are addicts are so difficult, no one wants to treat them. Mm. It's a hard one. 
you know, there's the, well, are you, are you enabling? Eric was homeless for a while. He'd say, mom, you've, you brought me seven um, sleeping bags. I'm living in a van and the window was broken out. I was going to be 30 degrees that night, that one November. And, and I said, yeah, I'm bringing number eight tonight because I just got to know that you're okay. And I kept feeling like it really wasn't, oh my gosh, I, I just need to save him and rescue him. It was really about, he's my responsibility. And I'm just going to leave him out there for somebody else to deal with. Mm-hmm. Didn't seem right to me. I wouldn't do that if he had any other illness. Right. But when he's an addict, dual diagnosis, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you're enabling. And I'm like, okay, we don't have any bratty cancer kids. We don't have any, I mean, really? We don't have bratty kids who are dying of a terminal illness. I'm thinking there's enough brattiness to go around. There's enough behavior to go around in any adolescent and any young adult that, that we can't really just go, oh, this group, yeah, no, that's enabling. This group, we're just loving them through terminal illness. And I don't know what that means. I just want to throw that question back out and go, really? That's where we're going to land on this. That's the easy out. Anything you do for someone who's addicted or have, has mental illness, yeah, that's enabling. I just, I'm just calling bullshit. Yeah, because when you really do reframe it as you would not do this with any other disease, you would not treat someone this way if they had any other disease. And, and just because someone's being difficult doesn't mean they're any less worthy of our care and our compassion and our love. It blows my mind that that's the way our whole society has kind of decided to treat people that are, you know, self-medicating something that's very painful. Yeah. And, you know, you get into the, whether to legalize marijuana or not, or whether that's, and I'm just like, I don't know, but could we please just have a conversation? Because there's so much tied into all of that. And I'm like, you know, the ones who are making that decision, I just want, I just want full disclosure. I'm like, if you're, if you're making that decision, then I want to see where you're getting all your money from when you're making those laws and who's supporting you, because then, then let just open it up. Let's just find out where that lands. I'm not the smartest one in the room, but I do know that we've got to do better than this. Eric was using weed to medicate for three months. And April of 2014 was the worst month we had. He knew he was going to, in 30 days, he was going to have to do a drug test and he was going to have to have a clean specimen. So he knew he was going to have to stop using weed. April was the downward spiral. He was working and productive and doing some of the best Luthery work that Dan had ever seen anyone do all of the time before that. But you get to the point where he had to switch to psych drugs he couldn't function. And then we end up with a mental health event. And then we call on that day and say, you know what, he's, he's in crisis. And I don't get a call back. It's a Thursday. And I don't get a call back because he's 29. And I'm like, really? This is from his doctor? <laughs> from the psych doctors. And I'm like, you guys, you, we can't, we got to do this different. We got to yeah. do this different. So when I work with addicts, they'll, they'll say, you know what, 
my family does this or that. And I'm going, listen, we got to We have to open this up and look at what your resources are. And we have to be clear about what you need them for and what they're not needed for and what's their role. So if I'm working with a family, we literally will do job descriptions and say, this is your role. This is this. If you want to come back into the circle and reevaluate, then we get to reevaluate. If the person relapses, we don't beat them up because when someone with cancer gets the cancer comes back after they've been in remission, do we beat them up? Do we go, hey, you need to hit rock bottom. We're going to have you arrested and you're going to sit in jail because that's going to be the way we're going to treat that illness. I'm like, no, we adjust a treatment plan. The chemo changes, the radiation changes, the medication, the nutrition changes. It changes, but not with mental illness, not with trauma mental illness that has led to substance use. It's not, it's not. Everything is always, oh no, you know, you screwed up. And I'm like, that's just, it's just not the the answer. We're, I keep saying this, but we can do better. Yeah. Because even when you look at the brain, is this a willpower thing? Like, is it just, oh, you don't have enough willpower to stop using? Dr. Lloyd would say, um, because he's, he's like, yeah, you know, people will say, uh, well, I can stop anything. And he goes, stop eating, stop eating yeah. and drinking because the reward center of the brain for the first hundred days, people just need to watch his stuff because he does a lot better job. But the reward center is what is on fire when people start, especially using opioids. And we'll just talk about that because that was, that's the epidemic. There's nothing other than that screaming at them. So he's like, okay, stop eating food. And let's see what the reward center is put in place so that we live. It's also our sexual drive. It's the way we were built so that we exist and live. The way the opioids were designed, it connected with that reward center, but it wasn't supposed to be addictive. Well, it is. And it creates this euphoria where you you don't have pain and there's peace. And the first time Eric used, he was still in college. And somebody owed him 80 bucks and he went to their house and said, Hey, I'm here for my 80 bucks. And the guy and his friends were all sitting there and he's like, yeah, don't got it, but I got this. And there was a syringe loaded with heroin ready to go. And he's like, yeah, I don't, I've never done that. I don't. And he goes, well, you know what? Try it. So he did. And they spent 45 minutes trying to revive him because he was gone. Oh my gosh. And that's the first time he used it. And his description is, I have never felt so much peace in all my life. Mm. And he says, I've been chasing that ever since. Yeah. And it's never that way. Then it's all about not getting sick, not getting dope sick, not getting achy, not getting whatever. So, you know, the brain doesn't know anything other than, wow, that worked last time. And it is ferocious. So Dr. Lloyd's part of Dr. Lloyd's story is, is he's recovering. He used to, he used to take pills from his patients. He had them in his cup holder in the truck. Yeah. Maybe briefly introduce Dr. Lloyd real fast. Dr. Stephen Lloyd is from East Tennessee and he has Cedar Recovery. It's in Mount Juliet. And he is, he's actually all about medically assisted treatment. So he'll use Suboxone and some of the others. And that's like, Oh, don't, don't talk to some people about that. That's, 
you know, we're not doing that. And I'm going, we better, we better start looking at things that each individual needs. So when he talks about his story, you know, he was a, he's a doctor and a very popular doctor and he was taking meds from his patients and it took him, he took him a long time. It took him two full years to recover from being, and he's, you know, he still does all the work. So when you look at a movie, there's a movie out there called Dope Sick and Mm -hmm. I think it's Hulu or Apple TV. I'm not sure which one it is, but Michael Keaton plays this doctor and the first little bit is about a doctor from West Virginia that he's playing. And then the, then it morphs into Dr. Lloyd. He's literally playing out mm-hmm. Dr. Lloyd's story. Oh, and, wow. and I both watched it and it, you know, a lot of people will say, yeah, I can't, I can't watch it. And I can't believe you're watching it. I think we watch it. Cause we're like, well, I just want to know if Hollywood's telling the truth, you know, at some point we're the ones who best know, Oh, well that looks, that looks right. You know, I've watched beautiful boy and all of those others. And that's, those are really great stories because, you know, their person lives, but dope sick is very accurate is a very Mm -hmm. good picture. And it's kind of Dr. Lloyd's story, but they do a good job in Mount Juliet at the, at their treatment center, helping people who do need medically assisted treatment. He's also very passionate about pregnant moms who are addicted and he has a real heart for helping them. So I'm just really proud to have him from our state and have him doing that kind of work here. I've, yeah. I've told him, I said, you know, when I heard him for the first time, Eric was already gone. And mm-hmm. I thought if I would have known, if I would have known that I should have just spread out that hundred days, but see what we do is we're like, okay, 90 meetings in 90 days, balance your checkbook, get your resume done, make sure your laundry's done, make sure everything's perfect. Well, you know, when granny has a stroke and we take her home, do we say, hey, granny, balance your checkbook? No, because her brain's not, her brain's still healing. So there are things that have to happen, but it looks a lot more like nutrition and exercise and maybe yoga and maybe meditation and and things they love and doing things, not just, not just the salt mines, you know, not just the punishment way, but to find a new way for that brain to heal. The more days we have in a row that we're able to do that, the more hope we have they'll survive. And yeah, I think that's the goal. <laughs> well, and I think our society is so tied to a like before and after in so many things. Before you were this, now you're fixed. Now yeah. it's better. Now you're here, you know, and we're so we're so interested in moving on and not kind of seeing things as long-term. Healing takes time. Grief doesn't just go away tomorrow. Things take years and years and maybe lifetimes and and we just tend to be so impatient with people and with ourselves. Well, and you know, it's, it's really funny because I sometimes wonder if we're impatient because of what we think we've invested and that we should get return on our money, which is why I keep going back to somehow, somehow we have to make helping these people more affordable. Somehow there has to be ways where, where there's help because some people survive, but when you, when you're in that, you know, middle to low income, your chances are pretty slim. 
yeah. on whether your loved one's going to make it or not. Just because of so, the expense of the treatment. Yeah, the expense. So when we're recording this, it's a, a day after the anniversary, eighth anniversary of Eric's passing. And I want to know more about your experience with grief and how it has changed over the years, if it has, because I think that's something that we, we don't often talk about or share about that. It's not just this acute thing that we experience it. It continues and it changes. What has that experience been like for you? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. The seasons will trigger a lot of it. So for me, when April starts kicking around in March, I can tell that things are stirring up and it's, it's hard because I, I would think that some people would think your whole family goes through this grief together. Grief is very selfish. Grief is not neat and tidy grief, especially traumatic grief with um, a passing that was a hard event. It was a traumatic day. It was a horrible day. It was a violent day. And so all of that holds these memories. And I tell people, my motto for my family has been the mental illness and trauma has taken enough from us. It doesn't get to steal more. So we really have to, we really have to use that grief energy because it comes and it comes in waves. It comes in as as a tsunami. And there are times, I mean, I'll just tell you there, some of the more important events that we have, Dan and I will get in some of our biggest knockdown drag out fights and it's pure trauma pure trauma. And I think knowing that helps us have a lot more grace for each other and knowing when, you know what, (laughs) we we all just need space or we all need time together. So we all grieve very, very differently. And Dan's a great writer. And so the first year we created this Facebook group and it was called Eric's Epic Wonderful Life. And people were able to post, but mostly we were able to just journal what we were going through. And there's a lot of people that would say, and their grief is so lonely that no one calls them. And I'm like, you know what? I ask for what I need. I literally either will put a post up and go, this is where we are today. And it gives people a hint on on what to do. And sometimes, sometimes I put stuff up thinking that I need people to do that. And then I find out, you know what? No, I needed... I needed solitude to do that because I don't know it. All I know is it hurts. It hurts. And I lost my mom and my dad within two months and two days of each other in 2016. So Eric had only been gone two years and, um, and that was hard and complicated, but for me, it was nothing like losing Eric because they were 82 and 86 and they had lived a long life. And I didn't really lose my future. You know, Eric's the one that would have had children or gotten, wanted to have kids and get married. And our family just got smaller and it's not going to get bigger. So I think that's probably the loneliest thing, but it's a lot of work. And I'm encouraging people who are grieving. And that's, that's kind of the group of people I work with as much as addicts is to say, you know, this is, this can be a very selfish thing. And that's, and that's not what you need it to be. You really need to know that this is your injury. And the same with when you're building a care team, you got to know what people can resonate with your story. And then you also need to know that there's just some lonely work 
that you have to do that having a spouse don't expect them to do it for you because it's very individual. So this year, Dan went to a garden center with me and then I went someplace with him and we did kind of two things. And last night we decided to watch the latest Ghostbusters movie because Eric always thought Ghostbusters were great. So we always do something in memory of him and kind of brings us together. And, but we, you know, we talk about him a lot and with each other and that kind of stuff. And it's really important to, to still have that, but yeah, it's still hard. The first year was rough. The second year is the hardest because everyone gets you through the first year. And then the second year, they kind of think, oh, well, they've already done that once. So Mm -hmm. it's rough. It's pretty rough. But I'm thankful that we're still standing. And part of that, I think, is just the work we do because of, of his struggle. So hopefully it's honoring him and helping other people. I'm glad I don't have nightmares anymore. I used to all the time. It's, it's weird. Sometimes I'll, the biggest dreams, most dreams I have are him needing me and I'm still trying to find a way to help him. And I'm like, that's so weird that that is what is just in your brain. And that's, you know, you're a mom, you're supposed to try to save your kid, you know, but it, you know, it's real holy space. And I think it's made me a better person and a friend. So I dare go into situations with other families with courage because I know that in the end it's important for them to have that kind of support. So, yeah. Yeah. Here's one thing. If you find a picture of someone that you know has passed, get it to their family. I got a picture, I guess it was a couple years ago that we'd never seen before. And I'm like, I said, I think people don't understand that if you have a photo that you think you may have of somebody, get it to that family. They, they're not going to have any other ones. So I know that's silly, but sometimes people kind of forget that. I'm like, no, find your photos. Because I think the fear probably is people don't want to make you sad or remind you of something sad. But is that how you feel in those moments? No. You giving me a picture or you saying Eric's name didn't make me think of him today because I had thought about him when I woke up. You know, I mean, that's the reality. You're not going to, it's, it's that funny thing where people say, you know, if I talk to someone who's depressed about, about suicide, it'll give them the idea to take their own life. And I'm like, yeah, no, you know, you really need to have conversations with people who are depressed, really need to have meaningful life giving conversations about real stuff and listen to their pain. So when I'm asked to go and speak about grief, I tell them I'm happy to, I said, but first I will tell you, and I'll try to share Eric's story of grief because he grieved through his depression more than I've grieved through his death. And that's, I think what people don't understand is depression is literally just a day in day out version of, of grief. I think it's in summary. So I just tell people, I'm like, no, we're going to talk about that. And when you look at his art, you can see, you can definitely see the grieving process that he was going through. So we all just, I'm, I'm like, is it too early to start grief groups in preschool? Cause you know, we get them on academic things to make sure they're in preparatory schools. I'm like, you know what? Parents, teach your kids how to grieve. Teach them how to grieve. Because if you do that, 
you will have created a healthy child. Because, I mean, I think we've learned that with a pandemic. What else? That's what we need to learn is really how to hold those emotions. So, yeah. Thanks for saying that about, you know, it's not, if you bring it up, you're going to make someone feel depressed. If you bring up suicide, it's going to make them want to commit suicide. If you bring up the story of their loss, it's going to make them think about it. Like that's all already there. I think what you do when you bring it up is you dispel shame and you make someone feel seen and you create connection. And I, that's something I always forget and tend to shy away from talking about grief with people just out of fear of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong things. I usually say, you know what? I want to acknowledge that I'm very aware of your pain. If you are open to talking about it, if not, that's fine. And you give them the opportunity. I mean, the worst thing I can do is assume that I'm their safe person. I mean, I may not be, I may be 40th down on the list, but that doesn't mean that I can't acknowledge that I see them and I know them and I care about their journey and their story and validate what they've been through. And I think when you have your heart open truly to people and you, you want to show them that you care, then it's not about me taking away something or me, oh, well, then they did really share everything. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. That's not the, that's not the currency. The yeah. currency is being open and saying, I see you. And I hear you and I know you and, and I value you. And the people that come up to us and say, thank you for sharing. It's so kind because, I mean, we get encouraged to continue the battle because it's a, it's mm-hmm. the rough one. You know, some of the stuff that we're battling against, it's tough. There's a lot of marriages that don't take the ride when you've lost a child. There's a lot, there's a lot of devastation that happens. So I'm glad that we're alive. I'm glad that we're doing something. Part of my grief, I shifted is is I said, you know what, God, this is not mine to do. You wrote my story. This is how it's playing out. You've got grief work to do because this is way above my pay grade. This stinks. I disagree. However you're writing this, whatever this looks like, all I know is it wasn't my idea and this happened and I'm not going to. I'm not going to be the one responsible to heal from this. You have to, you have to give me the ability to do that. And so, I mean, there's a little bit of the old 12 step powerlessness and surrender and acceptance. And when that happens, I feel like their healing can healing can come. So that's That's a little bit, I think of what we try to do is to just show people how to take the next step and, be very tender. So every year on April 30 and May 1st, we, first of all, we don't make huge plans because we never know. (laughs) We never know who's going to be in the mood for what. So we reserve space those days and we don't schedule things. We all do our thing and then allow people and hopefully at some level we get to come together, but lower the expectations because that'll kill you. Well, I feel like listening to this podcast, there's probably people in one of these two camps, either, you know, someone who's really struggled, has been in crisis, has struggled with addiction, or you yourself are struggling with mental health diagnosis, crisis, addiction, maybe secretly. What would you 
say to the people who are the family trying to um, know how to best love and support the people in their life really struggling right now? I believe with all my heart that a treatment plan looks like a team of people, a small group of people that are doing certain things than the next group of people. When I was on church staff, we did a lot of crisis stuff. And a lot of times it was around a death or whatever. And, and many times people all wanted to help that, that core initial family. Well, that's not realistic, but you find the people that you can put in that setting and you have to be able to fire them. I mean, they have to be that kind of people. So it's really important to, to look at what they can bring. And then you have to have people that can do this on the outside and you can have, and it takes a lot of people. And those are the resources, because if you don't have the ability to pay for someone to be gone for a hundred days or six months, then you're looking at doing something at home. And, you know, once the detox taken care of and once some of those things, it's not impossible. I mean, it's, it's not impossible if you have the right medical team and you have people. So I think that's the biggest thing is to say, what does it look like? And when you know somebody that's going through it, are you that person that could fill one of those roles? You know, are you that person who could say, you know what? I can drive them to meetings or I can drive them to, unfortunately, a lot of their time is spent paying court fees, probation fees, all of that kind of stuff. Once you're dealing with the war on drugs financial package, there's very little money for health. So one of my points is to say, well, at least if you can drive them, because many times, you know, they may have lost their license or they shouldn't be driving because they can't trust themselves. But I think that that it takes a lot of people to get them through. When you look at, you look at that first 90 days and then you look at two years, maybe consider employing somebody who's struggling with recovery and addiction. Maybe consider how your business could possibly have somebody working there. Can you give some more examples of what some of the team member roles might look like in a care team for someone? Well, they need physical medical help. They probably need psychological help. They probably need a coach because a addiction coach is very different from a therapist. They probably need someone to give them rides to those appointments. They, they may need someone to just give them odd jobs so that they have enough money to pay for those things. They may need a small little GoFundMe that gets put in somebody else's name so that those, those things are covered. I mean, we wish that we were able to do more under Guitars That Care. We give 10% of the full retail of every guitar to help other people. I wish that that was a bigger number. I mean, that we could just have resources that people could tap into. I'm not a nonprofit, but I wish we had a nonprofit somewhere that could say, you know what, this is what we do. This is the money that needs to happen. Donate it there and be able to to help people access those kinds of things. So once you get those kind of resources, then you just need humans that can do different things. I mean, literally people that would go for a walk with them or go for a bike ride or maybe even take them to a concert. It's like a sober living buddy. They need somebody and you can hire those. You could hire me to do that. But at that kind of money an hour, no one can do that. But they do need a sober living buddy. And you know what? 
they don't only need to be taken to Bible studies or to worship services. Stop that. Stop. They need to be able to do some normal things first. And then maybe along the way, they may be able to trust the church again. There's a lot that have been really burned and find out if that's healing for them or if it's not, don't just assume that's what they need. It's not fair. It's absolutely just not fair to anyone. I don't care what illness you have. You see all of those things. Like when Eric was released from, from his last stint in jail, he told his dad, he said, I need a job. I don't want a car. I don't want a cell phone. I need a safe place to live. He was working as a confidential informant for the detectives in Davidson County. And that was dangerous. I didn't even know this. I probably wouldn't have even wanted him living here. But I didn't know this until later that there were people that wanted him dead because he was narking on them. So, you know, they need a safe place to live. They need someone to have coffee with them in the morning. You know, they just need a place where they can use their words and create and be accepted and not judged. And a lot of times family members have so much pain from the addiction and from everything that went on. They really need someone that can hold space for them, not keep secrets. It's not, it's not that, but not everything in our story is best shared by the immediate caregivers that are there. And we got to have, we got to have people, we got to have a tribe. Many people would say, well, you'll find those in the rooms. And I, yes, you will. I get it. But you need people who don't live in the rooms. You need safe people. So the morning that Eric died, we got a call. I think it was 222 on May 1st. It was a Thursday. And they told us to come to, come to the emergency room at Centennial. He was in critical condition. Well, he was already gone by the time we got there. And there were people there that were in that thin space and with his body. And there were five people there with us, with our family. And we stayed, you know, at first I was holding his hand and his hand was still warm. And I'd slowly, I found myself slowly moving up his arm as the warmth left his body. And I was all the way up to his armpit. And that was like at 5.15. And I said, Dan, all the warmth's gone. He's gone. So we went home. By 10 o'clock that morning, there were about 100 people here. The day before was a mental health event beyond extreme measures. I mean, it's a day that I wish that I could just forget because it was hard. And mostly because there were moments of hope and then moments where we're like, we're not going to make it again. Oh, maybe we'll make it. We're not going to make it again. It was this constant day. And his, the cabin that he lived in was a horrendous mess. I mean, he was just not himself. So those, the people that came out that were there at 6 a.m., by 10 a.m., the bed that he had, that was nasty, that he'd been sleeping in was gone, taken away. There were two twin beds brought in with quilts on them, and everything was cleaned up and vacuumed and tidied, and there was artwork laying everywhere in his cabin that he had done. And they gave us the ability to celebrate our son's life, not only think about the death. And they didn't treat him like a junkie. I remember watching my friend Susan Schaefer walk through the front yard. She was scanning his art at her place of employment. And we saw her walking and Dan goes, 
look at her. It's like she's carrying Rembrandt's because she was so careful with everything. And that's how they treated him and us. So when you ask, what's the thing you want people to know? I want people to know that. There's so much more than their addiction. Find that, find who they are. It's unbelievable and precious. And there were, by 10 o'clock, there were over a hundred people at our house. And it was healing to have them there. So my son, my son's gone. My husband and my daughter are dealing with the Williamson County Sheriff's Office because eight hours before we found out that he was actually raped by four guards in Williamson County Jail two years prior. And we didn't know that. So, you know, good old war on drugs. Normally you're like planning a funeral and we're sitting here going, what? You know, and dealing with that stuff. So just know that when there's addiction because of all of these things, it's very complex. It's very complex. It's never just a simple, just the same when there's, you know, death by mental illness. It's very complicated. So what can people do? Just hold space. You'll get the information as they're able to tell the story, but many times they're just not even able to tell it. Yeah. But can I tell your audience what you mean to me? Sure. Okay, so when Kristen was just a wee photographer in her very early days, she came out because she was going to take pictures for our business. We were launching a new website. Eric was building a website. We needed photos. She came out and it was actually a weekend that Eric was detoxing. And he's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And she didn't force him, but he kept watching her work with us and watching her. And he was so intrigued that he entered in and we have some of the best pictures of our son that we have ever. My daughter and son-in-law are also photographers and they would say, get professional photos, get photos of your people because we don't have very many. We don't have near enough of Eric. And most of the time, he was not in a very good mood or he wasn't feeling good or, he, you know, it was all of that. But I sure wish we would have done more. But not every photographer can pull off what Kristen Sweeting did. And you have been a huge gift to our family. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it either. Getting to be in that space with you guys that day and just such an honor to be part of part of your story. And I have those pictures of Eric. Well, if someone is, is really struggling themselves, is hearing some of Eric's stories, hearing some of your story, and it's like, I relate, I relate so much to that. What do we say to them? Don't give up hope. Call someone. I mean, they can reach out to me. I'm not doing as much with active addicts. And under hashtag guitars that care, I usually take that first phone call and spend an hour with people and just try to ground them and help them figure out what resources they have so that they can then build what they think is they need to for a team. I try to help them look at where the potholes are going to be or where the things are that this seems to me like if something's going to break down, 
it may break down here. That's the most important thing when you're working with mental health or anything. I have a friend right now who's, who's dying of cancer and he's the hospital bed got moved in last Tuesday and all hell broke loose in their family just because every, everyone got exhausted. And I mean, it's just chaos. It just is. We're not meant to have these kinds of things enter our lives and you, you can sort of plan for them, but you really can't. So finding somebody that thinks family systems, like if you're looking at helping loved ones and you're looking for a therapist, you're better off trying to find somebody who understands family systems. And many times those are like MMFTs and LMFT, those kinds of family system types people. There's another thing that's helpful is try to find someone who understands attachment injuries. Those are very helpful theories and, and philosophies because the goal is to learn how to repair, not only have boundaries and build fort, but how do you in hopes have repair? How do you repair injuries that have done that you have to just do internally for yourself? But many people don't really understand those licensures. And I tell people like, oh, you have every right to interview a therapist. Do not take the first one. You know, you interview them, you ask them questions and you get, you decide if it's a good feel or not. Because just because your friend Sally said that they're great, it may not be great for you. And explore what coaches do. It's a whole different ballgame than a therapist. It is. You really need one, you know, and don't only have a coach and not a therapist because there's a lot of things that coaches aren't meant to do. So build your community, build your care team. Bring people around you. Yep. That community is so important. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to be known. You have to be willing to be known. Oh, yeah. Find a safe tribe. And you know what? They get built. They get built along the way. Allow people to have to peace out for a little while. Nate Larkin started the Samson Society. And we tried to do, (laughs) tried to do a version for women. Well, you know, as women, we're known to have all of the great things. We've got great friends and we communicate openly and honestly, and we love to get together and share. And the women one didn't make it because we need so many boundaries and so many this and so many self-protections and that it, it smothered. We literally had little fires of hope going and then all of a sudden they would smother out because we controlled way too much of it. And I laugh because, you know, we always give guys a hard time that they don't know how to do community. Well, they're doing a whole lot better than we were. But one thing that I took one big takeaway is in some of their literature, they say, and find someone for this stretch of the road. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes women tend to extend that stretch of the road longer than it's sustainable. So find people, not just one, not just clingy, hanging on, but you need to find a few people that you can be honest with and men too. I mean, you need to find people that you're honest with and you need to, even though I was on the mat and I was a mess, I needed to be able to hear that I was helping them. It wasn't only a one-way street. So find some people that actually will share their stories and their shame because then it makes you feel human and not like a project. This is a long road. It's a marathon. This is not a sprint. So you need to find, you need to have a long view of life and looking at what you need to do. And it, it changes and it morphs and it moves, you know, any given day, you just, 
you just never know. And after Eric died, I said, you know, we all of a sudden have a whole lot of time on our hands. So we decided to build guitars because we had a lot of free time. Yeah. Tell me about the guitars that you are building in honor of Eric. So fall of 2017, we built our first batch and they're EB Rooster guitars. Part of it's because some of the original wood came from my, my dad and he was a poultry veterinarian. So Dan and Eric thought it was a good idea to do rooster guitars. And I'm like, oh, rooster guitars. Anyway, I'm like, it's your, your deal. Go ahead. And so then when Eric died, he had the logo. This was his Eric Blum visuals logo. So Dan looked at it and he's like, kind of looks like a rooster comb. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is getting cornier as we go. But <laughs> his, his circus, his monkeys. So he decided, no, I think we're going to call him EB Rooster. So he took his logo and incorporated it into, into that. And we started building them. I mean, we know we're not saving the world, but we give 10% back of the full retail. But mostly we have our full story on the website. We are faithful to tell the truth about what Eric went through. So there's not a given, there's not a week that goes by that someone hasn't come out to our shop. Well, first of all, what's interesting is they all go, yeah, no, I read your whole story on your website. And I thought <laughs> what people wouldn't give for people to read a website. I mean, nobody does right. that. But right. they did. They're engaged. They're drawn in and they're drawn in by honesty and they're drawn in by vulnerability. So they were hanging at Carter Vintage and then we had a sign hanging on the wall that talked about a little bit about Eric's story. And I would see people taking pictures of the sign with tears rolling down their face. Mm-hmm. And I told Dan, I said, you know, Guitars That Care is as much letting people borrow our story until they're safe enough to tell their own. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that that was going to be such a big part for people. So we've had, you know, service people come out, plumbers, HVAC people, and they'll say, I've never told anybody, but I'm five months sober from heroin and no one knows. And my employer can't know, but thank you for doing what you're doing. So it's these, we hold these spaces for people that we know are dealing with hard stuff. So I don't know. Sometimes I think hopefully, hopefully the guitars that we build are helping the stigma and they're doing a documentary and it's 1028 film. They're doing a documentary. And if you want to support that, you can go on 1028film.com and there's um, tax deductible donations. We still need to raise, I think we've raised about a hundred thousand, but we need to raise about that much more because they're hoping to get it into Netflix or HBO. And I had no idea, but when you get into distribution, like everything has to be closed captioned in all of the different languages for around the world. So it's an expensive project, but um, much of Eric's story is being used. And there's a lot of people who have a story that's, that's valid, but the director felt like, you know, if you, if you start because you had a, got hurt playing high school football and were put on opioids and then you turned and became an opioid and a heroin addict, you know, there's that. If you died because you had a fentanyl overdose, then there's that. But those are things that kind of are like, wasn't as much their fault. Mm. And he's like, well, if I can get them to fall in love with Eric and his story, then I can take them for the whole ride and everyone else is coming along too. 
because none of that is true for him. He didn't die of fentanyl. He, there's, there's nothing. He, you know, he had mental illness and trauma and chose to self-medicate. And it was over 14 years that he struggled with substance use. So that's, that's kind of what we're doing. And it's scary. You know, the first when they came out and filmed and Skip was walking down the sidewalk with everything, all the film and everything in his bag. I said, you know, you have the power to hurt us. You have the power to take everything you filmed and destroy us. I said, but I trust you. And I'm not going to worry one second about what you're doing because we're, we're telling the truth and we're being authentic and we have to trust that we'll be protected in that. And so far we have been, you know, you want to be wise, but I don't know. There's a certain point where it's like, whatever, (laughs) you know, I think you've seen over and over again, how your openness and your vulnerability and your honesty has opened doors and not closed to them. And it's brought people in who support you and who, who benefit from your story and who feel supported by you too. So thank you for choosing vulnerability, even in the places where it's very scary. Well, it's, um, it's a freedom. Yeah. You know, people are like, I can't believe you tell the truth. I go, I, if I would have had to lie, I wouldn't have known what lie I made up last. This it's literally, it's literally the best thing that we knew how to do. So for the most part, we had huge group of people that knew what we were going through and cared about us. It was, and it was amazing. Still is. So tell us a little bit more about your guitar shop and how people can find you and the work that you're doing there. I know a chunk of what you guys make from the guitars goes back to support people, but I also think just the beauty of having a space that you bring people in and you hear their stories and you love on them is beautiful too. So we'd love to hear more about your shop, where to find you. We're in Fairview, which is just a little ways outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And our shop is connected to our home. So Eric lived in a cabin and he walked across and worked here. And so right now, what's fun is we can, we do some custom builds. We're doing several that are retail, but what we enjoy doing is, is having people come in and say, you know what? I like the way this one plays. Can I get this with these pickups or this neck is going to be this way? And Dan's been doing repair since 1989. And he has learned so much from working on other manufacturers and a lot about what not to do and things of going, you know, this, this really could be better. So the guitars that he builds that, and I help with those two are really ready, road ready. And the beauty is, is he, I think the thing he's most proud of is people who own them. They have been really good guitar players. He's like, I love that, that these people who are really good guitar players love my guitars. So that's been fun. So he's been mostly making electrics. They're all on our website, ebrooster but you can see everything we've built and descriptions of what they are. And so you can nerd out totally on electric guitars. And mostly they've been mostly like Strat styles and Tele styles. And we're making some little Les Paul styles, some basses. And Dan would say, if, if there's anything that he could do, any job, he would just be the designer. And he would say, 
this is what needs to go together. And then you'd have somebody do the hard work. <laughs> do you have a favorite that you've built or a favorite? I know it's like picking a favorite child, but is there one that well, you're he, like, that was, you know what? One. He just, he just built one recently and he calls it the rustic rooster. So he's used some of my dad's pine that came out of a chicken coop kind of thing. And then a friend of his passed away and he is using some of his reclaimed barnwood. But then we, he took old door hardware and reshaped it so that it works for some control plates. And those are, those are fun because they're just creative and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're going to link to all of Cindy and Dan's work, their shop, coaching, recovery coaching that Cindy does and some of the different things that we referenced on today's podcast. But thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing about the work that you and Dan do and, and honoring Eric and his story and his art as well. Thank you, Kristen. This episode was produced and edited by the lovely Jen Madigan Creative. Music for this episode was written and recorded by Jamie Lono and Shammy D. Thanks for being part of our Dangerous Creatives podcast community, and we'll see you again next time.